Stuntman. He'd mastered the fall, the roll, the headbutt recoil, the plunge of death. It was just the yank that spooked him. Brace around his belly, the teenage actress would roundhouse to his chest, the wire would tauten, and he'd be pulled back and up as if by a storm wind or the hand of a deity to smash backwards into a strategically placed pre-weekend fake wall or plate of sugar glass. The smash was no problem, it was the yank. Maybe I can help you practice, the teenage actress had said. Her trailer was messy, and he noticed drifts under her eyes that her stage makeup must usually have covered up. She kicked him again and again, but it was no use. Without the wire, it's not the same, he told her. Well, she said, I could open the door of the trailer and you could stand in front of it. Thanks, he said, but it really needs the wire. She seemed to understand. Mind if I change? She made to remove some clothes, and so he excused himself. He was a gentleman stuntman. He tried practicing with a length of wire tied around his midriff and his roommate tugging on cue. You have to really pull, he'd said. The roommate expressed a lack of confidence, and so it proved. Confidence is so important. He tried with a length of rope attached to the rear of Jimmy's Honda Civic. On three, he'd yelled. Jimmy gunned it, but it was more of a drag. Wish I could help you, bro, Jimmy'd said. He decided the only way was to practice for real. He broke into the studio, only to find the teenage actress sitting on the prop settee in character. No words were exchanged, but the situation was understood. She watched as he strapped himself in. Do me a favour, he said, and score me out of ten. She was as good as her word. When he met her on another set several months later, their bond was implicit. It's hard to overstate the value of a confidant. Hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. This is a new literature podcast uh, co-hosted by me, Chris Nealon, and you. And me, uh, Helen Mott. That one I like there. that I'm me and you at the same time. You're that feels me. nicely inclusive. You. You've just heard from me already. You've heard uh, my story to, to start us off. Um, and later in the show, you're going to hear from, uh, I would say, much more talented and decorated writers than me, um, including that one there, Helen Mort. Who else? Who have we got guesting on our first show? Helen. We've got two fantastic guests today. We're going to hear from Anjum Malik, who is a poet, academic and script writer based in the Manchester Writing School here at Manchester Metropolitan, where we're recording at the moment. <laughs> and her most recent project for Radio 4 was a book of Middle Eastern food, which was an adaptation of Claudia Roden's recipe book. And it's absolutely fantastic and mouthwateringly good if you get a chance to listen. Um, we're also going to hear from Kim Moore, who's completing her PhD in poetry and Everyday Sexism, also at Manchester Met. And her first poetry collection was published by Seren. It's called The Art of Falling, and it recently won the prestigious Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. Yeah, there we go. Two very talented and uh, experienced writers for your listening pleasure. Um, 
And one of the things we talked about before recording this show is uh, what what is it? What is the show? What are our aims for this show? What are our aims for this show, Helen? Um, Aside from occasionally me doing silly voices. I wasn't expecting you to ask me that, no, but I'm unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really intrigued when you first mentioned the idea of two-minute stories as a, as a podcast mm. because I'm convinced that we could all make a little bit more room for literature and for art in, in our everyday lives. Mm. It really doesn't take that long to read something or experience a, a work of art. So in two minutes, you could walk around about 546 feet if you walk at a normal pace, or you could brush and floss your teeth if you you're really virtuous you could boil the kettle and make a cup of tea or if you're one of those really annoying people who eats them in a weird way you could eat a twix um if you go for that thing of eating all the chocolate from the outside first it absolutely <laughs> drives me mad and um, you could Psychopath. do any of those things or you could read a poem or a story and even better you could actually have one read to you by the author which i there guess is go. part of the idea behind what we're doing here these two minute stories mm. what could be better exactly I guess we've got quite a variety of um, of stories on on the show as well. That's true. We do. We do not have uh, necessarily uh, lulling and easy and gentle material throughout the way throughout the show. In fact, we have at least one very uh, challenging, I would say, uh, piece from from Kim Moore. Do you think challenging is the right word for that? Helen? Yeah, something that um, that might be difficult listening and that might be make people stop and think again. But we've also got uh, coming up. We've got themes of cooking and food and a kind of ghost story as well. So there's quite a lot of variety. And I guess it's important to say that um, I think three out of the four two minute pieces you're going to hear today are actually poems or presented as poems on the page. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So we wanted to broaden the definition of what we mean by a story two-minute story yeah and we'll talk about that a little bit as later in the podcast i think we have uh, yeah we have one story which you've already heard and three poems that have story elements mm-hmm. you think yeah yeah i think that's fair um and that's something that we talk about what makes a story what has to be there for it to be a story um okay so uh i think that's enough uh wittering uh we can't have wittertainment can we that's that's um that's copyrighted, I think. Yeah, we could do. We could invite the people other to comment yeah. on Witter yeah. and give that feedback. We could have waffletainment, no. <laughs> kind of waffly. Um, okay, so we're going to hear then from the first of our guest writers. And uh, first up, we've got Anjum Malik. So here is Anjum with her poem with story elements. The Sizzle of Love Onions, Garlic, Ginger, chopped in a flash, dropped to sizzle. Into the oil warming in the pan, tomatoes, coriander and green chilies follow the chopped sizzle route. Garam masala, haldi and the sauce is on its way, sizzling as it sets the juices flowing. A few stirs are followed by chicken, lamb or fish, whatever was in the shopping today. Curries galore in our kitchen. Chapatis roll off the pin and onto the tava. Hot, piping hot you made them. Off the flame and onto our plates. Tearing off big pieces we scooped, slurped, chomped our way through the salon and roti. We teased you every time. A map of India? Nah, it's Thailand. Mine's the best. It's England. You stood by us, smiling, your face glowing, satisfied. You watched us eat your food, made with that one essential ingredient, love for your brood. 
We loved your cooking. We loved you. No dish was ever the same. Each one a masterpiece, unique, one and only, as you were, our precious, precious dad. was Anjum Malik reading her mouth-watering poem, The Sizzle of Love. Um, Anjum, it really struck me as you were reading that then that the poem really does seem to sizzle on the page. It has that feeling of ingredients being first thrown into a pan and that lovely kind of heartwarming noise that they make. And it strikes me that your work in general is quite interested in the stories that food can tell. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit about where you get your ideas from. Um, well, for the I don't know really. I mean, I suppose um, the food writing began when I did this residency for the Commonwealth Games and we had to come up with a hook to pitch to be considered for the residency and I came up with the idea of food. So I hadn't really thought about writing about food and I thought food connected the Commonwealth and then all these poems started coming and that was actually the very first poem I wrote for that residency and probably my very first food poem. Amazing. And there's yeah. been many, many more since. And yeah. you've also been adapting <laughs> Claudia Roden's um, book uh, for radio recently too. Yes, yes. Uh, a, uh, a Book of Middle Eastern Food was Claudia Roden's first book. And I had the incredible honour of adapting it to a drama series for BBC Radio 4, um, which was amazing to, to get to play with recipes and to meet Claudia and to then make a drama out of it. And then I guess you're you're sort of drawing the stories out of a text that's already got them in there rather than, I think sometimes as story writers, we're always thinking about building things up from that's scratch. True. But maybe yeah. sometimes the stories are out there already and you're just kind of trying yeah. to find them. I think all my work is like that. I I take fact and turn it into fiction. And I, I, did, I don't think I realised it until probably recently that I've always done it. I've yeah. always found some true story and then turned it into drama um, right from when I started writing. It's kind of like a, a way of making sense of the world, isn't it, sometimes, I think? Because yeah, sometimes those stories make more sense to us than the facts. There's yeah. some way of telling it differently. Yes, um, yes. I guess it, um, I, you might not like this, you, me using the word ingredients because I'm on a cooking theme <laughs> now, but um, what, what do you think the ingredients of a good story are? If, if a story a had question. ingredients, what would they be? Well, I suppose you need a good character, mm-hmm. <laughs> you need a good hook, you need a good plot, you need it to twist and turn and to always surprise you. Uh, for example, with the sizzle poem, people always expect it to be a mother at the end. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't even think about it because it was my dad was the cook in our family. Um, so when I first read it out publicly, a lot of people said, oh, we thought you were going to say your mum. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that you need those kind of things. It's such a tender poem as well and it it makes me think that sometimes, for me anyway, what I look to literature for is a quiet kind of surprise. It's sort of the surprise of showing you something that was there Mm. all along and that's what what the sizzle of love does for me, I think. It's sort of showing something that often goes on quite quietly in the background and nobody kind of says anything about it. Um, Actually, that's a really good point as well because I also like writing about the very small things because mm-hmm. I think that's what makes a good story. 
is that tiny things, yeah, you know, yeah. which people do or you see or you hear, make up the big story. And it's always the detail. Uh, the story is always in the detail. I always, I've always been fascinated by the small things. And you were saying that you've you've always sort of had that impulse to make stories. Um, yeah. Was there anything as a kind of as a reader, I guess, or, or early on, was there anything? Was there a story that you were told or one that you read that that meant a lot to you? Something that stayed with you and that started you off as a writer, or was it more kind well, of general I, than that? I think it was always like that. I mean, I was born in the Middle East in Saudi. So the very first stories I remember are watching Popeye. (laughs) (laughs) And I would eat spinach, waiting for my muscles to pop. (laughs) And mum and dad must have worried about me because there was this kid saying, I want more spinach. Did it work? No, because I'd sit there. I always had really skinny arms. But now I do weight training and I can Uh, make my muscles uh go a bit bigger. They're not that big, really. But so I, I mean, that... I've never thought about it, about Popeye, but I, I used to love Popeye. And that's a story. Every serial, every episode has a story. But the best thing I remember is when I got to Pakistan, because we lived there briefly, and we had comics, uh-huh. but they were Asian, Pakistani comics. So there'd be these stories of these jinns. Uh, jinns are like giants. Mm, yeah. And uh, the jinns, the it was, I still remember it, and I should do something with it. So the jinns are really big giants. And they lose their hearts and souls are kept somewhere safe. They're not in their bodies. So in order to kill them, you have to go on this expedition to get this heart or soul. And I, and it was always really exciting. Every story. And I, so I'd always be running to the shops to get the next comic to find out how this particular gin was going to be killed. That's amazing. And you don't know where their heart is because it's somewhere separate from them. Yes. That's yes. amazing. And so there were a series and series of these comics. Um, so there were loads like that where there were these mythical Asian creatures made into comics and I would just sit there devouring them like a kid. And and I still think about the jinns and their hearts somewhere else. I, I'm always yeah. you know, fascinated by that. The, the Popeye thing as well. I used to watch Popeye when I was little and I really loved olive oil. And I think it is a basic transformation story, isn't it? It appeals to us because it's like this idea that you can be something other than yourself at the moment yeah. when you most need yeah, that. Yeah. And suddenly your, your shirt sleeves are going to pop, pop open <laughs> and your muscles are going to appear. And it's just. We need to yeah. rewrite that and olive oil. Pops the muscles. Yeah, she was never. She never <laughs> she was quite got a the skinny attention. One. And I, I did get called olive oil at school because really? I was really skinny. Oh no, <laughs> no, that was about yeah, but, but yeah, that's very frustrating. When I wanted to be Popeye. <laughs> yeah, I wonder maybe yeah maybe the the roles could be reversed <laughs> yeah. or there could be um, a thing. Um, do you think you would? Obviously, um, you write a lot for radio and you have a huge audiences for your work, but do you think you would still want to write stories if you had no audience, if there was no one else who was going to hear them? Would you still want to write, even so? I was writing all my life, yeah. but I didn't know I was writing. So, I mean, I didn't start being a writer uh, till much later in life. I, I, I became a writer sort of in my 40s, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, but I used to write every night. And my sister used to say, you know, you're writing poems and stories. And I said, no, this is just my diary. But it, uh, uh, to be honest, yeah, a lot of my poems came from that diary, the first collection I had published. And no one used to read them? You just used to kind no, of I used to put, just them, put away. them away? And so I think I always had this 
thing in me yeah. to write. Um, and I, I think it was always there. I just didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you a really silly question, okay. possibly, maybe to, <laughs> to wrap things up, um, which links back to the theme of the sizzle of love. Um, because I love one of the things I love about the poem is that you capture the the momentariness and the fact that cooking is an event and that everyone's brought together, sort of watching and waiting as this happens. And I was thinking about him. Um, food and food being quick and slow and because yeah. we were talking a lot about the theme of two minutes um i want to know if you only had two minutes to make something uh, or to cook something what would what ingredients would you put in like where would you start and what would you make oh you can make a lot in two minutes mm-hmm. you can make this wonderful um dish which um like you fry some onions and garlic throw in you know those tinned pilchers in yes. tomato sauce yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, add some spices and coriander fresh coriander uh crack in an egg and warm some pita bread, and there it is. This is great. Not only have we had <laughs> literature, but you sorted out my tea for me as well. This is a result, I think, from a podcast. <laughs> thanks so much, Andrew, and thanks for reading your poems and oh, sharing your pleasure. stories with us. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for asking me. The next piece that we're going to feature... Uh, comes with a trigger warning for containing themes of sexual assault, sexual violence, and some listeners might find it disturbing. If you'd prefer not to listen, you can skip forwards. Uh, Like everything else in the show, the piece is going to last exactly two minutes. All the Men I Never Married, number 25. She told me that when she woke, she was in the dark, in a strange room, fully clothed, apart from her knickers, which she never saw again, apart from her top and bra, pushed up round her throat. Imagine waking into silence, to strange shapes in the dark, not knowing if you're alone, her shoes still on her feet, her feet still in her shoes, and something deep inside aching, and nothing to do except stumble from that bed and run away. Nothing to do but pass down the hallway like a ghost. Like a ghost disturbing nothing, holding her breath until she was out in the crispness of a November morning, walking along a faithful avenue of silent trees and fallen, falling leaves. She told me she remembered standing at a bar and a hand in the small of her back that felt like fire. The world slowly turning and her at the centre, no ghost yet, but getting smaller. And she remembers a hand loosening a tie, but not what happened after. Nothing about a face, her body no longer hers, and somewhere is the man who did this to her. And somewhere is the man who must have put her in that bed and walked that same avenue of trees, waiting for her to leave. We learnt this when we were young, that these things can happen, that it's possible to walk into a bar one evening and wake up in a stranger's place, with someone's semen dried between your legs and your throat cannot remember saying no, but your heart cannot remember saying yes. That was All the Men I Never Married, number 25, by Kim Moore. And Kim Moore is here. Hello, Kim Moore. Hello. Uh, So that particular poem has very uh, potentially troubling content. 
uh, and obviously it's potentially triggering for some people. Um, so I was wondering if when you're working with content so uh, intense and potentially triggering as that, if that affects your process uh, in any way. I don't know if it affects if it affects my process, but it's it's from a longer sequence of poems called All the Men I Never Married, which where I'm looking at um, experiences of sexism. And that was an ex- that was the poem is based on a true incident, a true story that someone else told me that I had kind of filed away in the back of my head as um, I thought of it as, um, yeah, I suppose an experience of sexism. And then through writing the poem, I realise it's not sexism. It's I'm writing about rape and sexual assault. Um, so that was interesting in itself. The writing of it made me realise what it actually was. Um, and, yeah, it's a story I was told when I was 18 by a friend and I've never, I hadn't talked about it until, I hadn't told anyone until I started writing the poem. Partly because it wasn't my story to tell, I think. It was a story, it was someone else's story. Has that affected the way that you feel about it, having now written about it and the work been, you know, published and distributed? Um, Yeah, I think... I think poetry always starts from this place of not knowing. So I knew what I wanted to write about was um, was this story, but I didn't know why I wanted to write about it. I didn't know why I'd remembered it um, um, since I was 18, and I'm now 36, however many years that is. So it was writing the poem made me realise why, which is which is the bit in the poem where I talk about what that... what. Um, what I learned from hearing that story when I was younger, that I learned that these things can happen, can happen to um, to normal people. You know, they happen to people I know rather than mm. strangers. Do you do you put a lot of yourself? Have you put a lot of yourself autobiographical kind of detail into that the sequence, all the men I all the men I never married sequence? <laughs> uh, they were kind of mixed. So some of the poems are about ex-boyfriends and some of them um, are about sexism so it's basically sexism and then female desire and then I think if we talk about female desire it invites sexism to into the room or it invites the sexism that's already in the room to kind of speak Um, but yeah there's a lot of a lot of the experiences in the poems are based on things that have happened to me some of the ex-boyfriend poems as I refer to them I have to think of a better name for them Um, but some of them I might have amalgamated a few of the (laughs) ex-boyfriends to make one man or sometimes a lucky ex-boyfriend gets like five poems about him but it it would seem to a reader that it would be five different men yeah that's it's a tricky thing to deal with I think when you start um, writing um, fairly consciously about yourself because you have to think about um, uh, how am I presenting myself? What version of myself am I presenting? What are my goals in presenting that? Um, am I kind of maybe sometimes there's a tendency I find to uh, subconsciously to kind of correct things in your own life through your work in some way, you know, either to make sense of them or or to reorder things make things manageable find meaning where it was hard to find meaning in your life um and then you also have to think about uh 
presenting real people and and the kind of uh the morality of doing that and how it would impact on them um how how do you feel about all those kind of kind of things some of the poems or there's one poem in particular i probably won't publish because i think it would upset the person it's about and he's a good friend still Mm. um but most of the time i just go for it (laughs) i don't worry so much about how i'm representing myself which i probably Mm. should think about more um i just kind of spout off um but i do worry about upsetting other people and most of the poems i've actually showed to the people if there if there's bits of the people in them mm. i would show them and say are you okay with this apart from this one poem that's really bad and i wouldn't <laughs> not bad as in bad quality bad as in yeah cutting <laughs> yeah but top quality oh amazing <laughs> poem yeah have you so when you've shown something to someone have you ever had anyone say i'm not comfortable with that um, not with these new poems, but um, a poem in my book called My People, which is about, um, it's kind of about my family, but it's more about, um, you know, the coming from a working class background. And um, I think it's a, what I'm writing about there is a is a general experience that I think we all have with parents and an, old, and an older generation where you have conflicting political views, maybe, or, um, mm. you know, you fall out with your grandma because they you know, who they vote for. Or, um, so really, I'm, it's a general experience, but the first draft of it was very recognisably based on my family and I read it to my mum over the phone and she was quite um, not upset by it, but she said um, it was too kind of close to the bone. Yeah. Um, and Did then, you scale it back after that? Well, I was really, I was upset because I'd upset her a little bit. Yeah. And then it was a really new draft. So I put it away for a while and then I came back to it and I thought, actually, it's not actually a poem. It's too raw still. It's still too angry. Mm. Um, I was trying to write about kind of casual racism as well, actually, and how hard that is when someone says... Is your mum a casual racist? No, my, not my mum, definitely. But my kind of wider family would say, I'm not racist, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And people I know would say, you know, good friends mm. would say, I'm not sexist, but... Or I'm not homophobic, but... You yeah. know, those type of conversations Dead where... giveaway. But you, you want to... They're saying something you don't agree with, but you yeah. want to maintain the relationship because it's important to you. So yeah. I'm interested in those grey areas, like nice people say not very nice things and mm. how we negotiate that so anyway so I went back to the poem and um didn't I wouldn't say I scaled it back but I made it into a poem rather than a rant which I think yes. is is the key yes and now my mum doesn't mind after that it's fine I always make a joke and say oh I don't read it any further south than Manchester but actually <laughs> that's not true I've read it in front of my family and they're they're fine about it it's a tricky area that because obviously I mean the worst thing you could possibly do would be to uh, mediate your output to please the people close to you so that you don't upset people. I mean, I mean writing anything so that you don't upset people, um, perhaps triggering issues aside, is a pretty bad idea, right? You want to be challenging, you want to be confrontational when things need to be confronted and, and you know, not writing about um, sexual stuff, for example, because, oh, I don't want my parents are going to have to read that. And that's not going to be that's not going to be good for the work or the reader, is it? Uh, might think, make things easier for you, but yeah, that's actually that's one taboo I haven't done. Yet. <laughs> I haven't written a sex poem that I would be happy with my mum and dad reading. Yes. Um, yeah, but I don't. Well, there's a goal for you. 
Yeah, I don't think about those things until I'm editing, actually. I don't think you can yeah. think about it while you're writing, while you're creating. But then when you're editing, I think, and then not worry about the all. I think if it's a good poem, you can get away with mm. doing those things. Um, yeah. And it's worth it. If it's a bad poem, it's not worth going there, is it? Yeah, so, there you go. Yeah. That's true. Okay, well, uh, I think that's uh, that's we'll wrap that up there. Thank you very much, Kim, for reading. Uh, it's a very, very powerful piece. It's helpful to know that if you've experienced something terrible, it's helpful to know that it happens to other people, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really powerful, powerful thing to... Um, to have to have an experience maybe reflected back, and that doesn't mean it has to be exactly the same. But um, yeah, when I've written about violence before, the first I was writing about violence in my first book, and the first thing I did was to find other poets and writers that were writing about violence and find how they'd done it, um, mm. how they'd got around the problems. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Kim. Thanks. from Kim Moore reading one of her poems from the sequence in progress All the Men Are Never Married which I think is just the best title for a sequence of poems ever Good and she was talking to Chris about her writing process as well um, what have we learnt? have we learnt anything? good question <laughs> it's uh, there's something particular about writing that I think there's something re- it's like a release valve I think when something that's powerful and dark is is represented you know truthfully and accurately in in prose or poetry um i think that's a very powerful important thing and kim i think has done that in her poem i'm really interested i think thinking today about the concept of the two minute story has made me dwell a bit more on this idea that a two minute piece or any any work of fiction really can can do um, well, it can do lots of things, but the two things in particular it can do really powerfully. It can either focus in close up on a moment and really bring it to life and make it seem like it encompasses the whole world, um, like with um, like with your story or with Anjum's piece about cooking and how it suddenly becomes this big process starting from something small. Or it can go the other way and it can start with something that almost seems like it's too big and difficult and uncontained to be able to write about mm. and actually find a form for it and find a narrative and find an individual story that captures something much bigger. And I think just they're just as powerful as one another, those two ways of doing things. And it's mm. been interesting for me to think a bit more about that. And you can do it all in two minutes. You can. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And I think there's a real power as well when you reduce the form to something that brief. Mm. Um, and when you get those little... Uh, redolent details kind of nestled within that smaller form. There's something all the more bright and sparkling and impactful about those little details. You know, yeah. life is full of weird little details and there's something about giving emphasis to those things that is, is effective. 
Yeah, definitely. Pleasurable. We're, we're used to the idea, as writers think all the time, that you've got to be economical and that every word's got to count. But as you place mm. constraints on yourself more and more, that, that just heightens that, doesn't it? And it kind of sharpens everything a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Nothing can be arbitrary. Nothing can be random. It's he- all got to earn its keep. Here's a question that I was going to ask Kim and that I didn't ask him. Uh, what's it like being a writer? Oh, are you asking me? I'm again? asking you. What's it, like, what's it like being a writer? Um, I could throw that right back at you and you reverse could. the question. Um, uh, I think it's both intensely lonely sometimes and intensely connecting. Hmm. And I think um, what we're doing right now is a nice kind of metaphor for that in some ways. <laughs> we're sitting in a small studio, actually not that small, quite a big studio. Yeah. We're sitting there um, talking into microphones and yeah. talking to each other with no one else here. No one else. It's and just yet us at the same the time, we're trying to produce something that's going to have quite, we hope, quite yeah. a wide reach and that a lot of people are going to hear. Yeah. And I think all of your life um, as a writer is divided between those two extremes. Oh isn't God, it? it's so somewhere. true. How, how about you? How did you find being a writer? Is I'm not going to exactly let you get that. away without answering your own question. Exactly <laughs> that. It's, it's, a, it's a long chain of sitting in rooms preparing something you hope for many thousands of people but none of them are there it's just you in the room and you just have to you have to take it as seriously as you possibly can and just assume that this will one day be seen by many 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 people but it's just you for years in rooms just you maybe a laptop if you're lucky perhaps a cat I feel like you've set the tone quite nicely for the piece that we're going to hear at the end, which is actually one of mine, um, because it's a ghost story. And I was thinking about um, the slight creepiness of um, being alone in a room, especially with recording equipment. Um, uh, Yeah, I guess to finish the programme this week, the last two minute story you're going to hear is a kind of ghost poem from me and it's set in Sheffield and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And thanks so much for everyone who's tuned into the first Two minute stories. Yes, thank you very much, and we'll be back in uh, in a month or so mm. with another one. Mm. Stainless Stephen. He haunts the chippies mostly, nodding his approval at the puns. Posh place, in cod we trust. He's dressed up to the nines in stainless shoes, a plated vest, two spoons for a bow tie a fork to comb his sleek black hair. He says, I'm aimless, comma, brainless, comma, stainless Stephen, semicolon, semi-conscious, ordering my chips, full stop. And when the shop lads shove him out into the cold, he knows a pub across the river where the doors will never shut, a shell between the empty works, where brambles twine around the pumps and every glass is draped with webs. Where men stride in, still sweating from the braziers that vanished 30 years ago and tug their collars, loosening the noose of heat. The jukebox hasn't changed its tune since 71. The landlord stands a statue at the bar, a stainless saunters in and tips his silver hat. Surveys his audience, the roughed up chairs, the yawning window panes, the shabby walls that echo back each joke as if they know them off by heart. Semi-quaver, semi-frantic, stainless croons the golden oldies, sing-alongs to sway to here in Sheffield, where they drink till dawn and beg for encores. No, There's no such thing 
as time. Thank you.